This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today we're chatting with Pete Rothwell. Pete's the cropping manager of Bramble, just north of Mandurin. It's a mixed farming operation owned by his father, David. On Bramble, Pete's growing winter and summer crops over 1,000 hectares and runs sheep and a few cows on the remaining 600 hectares. In this episode, we hear how Pete spent a few very formative years working on farms in southern New South Wales. But since coming home to the farm, Pete's been very focused on improving the cropping part of his business. He's pushing the envelope in terms of crop type, yield and profitability, focusing on understanding his soil moisture and using this to drive decision making about his cropping inputs. Pete doesn't accept the status quo, he's always asking why and looking for research and data combined with his own experience to make decisions on his farm. Mixed Farm Advisor Callan Thompson had a yarn with Pete over a cup of coffee while overlooking a cracking crop of canola from his cottage at Bramble. Pete, could you tell me a bit about your enterprise and the business here at Bramble? Yeah, we're a mixed farming operation, growing winter and summer crops as well as sheep. Also run a few cattle. And what sort of hectares of cropping and that sort of thing do you do? We'd be up to around a thousand hectares of cropping. The other 600 hectares is purely pasture. Yeah, our soil types and topography here vary, sort of run into quite a bit of rocky country and only good for the the sort of lice taxis. (laughs) And you do have a, a fair bit of good black soil here as well, don't you? Yes, no, definitely. It's like this bit of an anomaly I would say for what most people would think Mendoran country is like but you know there's definitely very lucky to have some beautiful soils here. Yeah I think whenever we've had a field day or brought people onto the place from elsewhere even people not too far away they they're usually pretty surprised when they see the colour of the dirt. Pete you grew up on Bramble but you didn't come straight back to the farm can you give me a bit of a rundown on sort of your journey from leaving school and why you came back? way to school in Sydney and straight after that for the first couple of years I was doing lots of odd jobs and I guess trying to find my spot in the world. Wasn't really sure what direction that would take me. So I'm mucking around a lot of sport and a lot of things I suppose young people do when they first leave school. And then sort of more getting serious I sort of went to um, ag college for a while down at Wagga and then headed off to down to Goulburn was a real eye-opener for me. Like that was sort of predominantly a livestock area and the fellow I was working for down there was really starting to push the boundaries with cropping and it just shocked me seeing the the yields and what was possible down there and it shouldn't surprise me that much but it's, it's like the drier parts of England, I suppose. Like the seasons are just incredibly long and incredibly soft and pulling off five tonnes sort of canola crops and... 10 tonne wheat crops it was just yeah it was something else and that really oh, sparked my interest I suppose in terms of like always looking outside the square of what can be done once you fully understand what is happening in an environment so yeah I was there for a couple of years and then unfortunately my 
mother passed away and that was the catalyst for me coming back home to the family farm. Been here back home for about seven years. When you were down at Goulburn, I was doing the agronomy here for your dad and I remember you coming up and asking a lot of questions that I couldn't answer. It seemed that you really started to push the envelope and, and see what we could achieve here after experiencing that farming system down there. Yeah, definitely. It's something, I guess a bit of a personal trait is I don't like being held by ideologies. Like, I always like to try and think for myself. Like, and I don't want to give myself too much credit there because nearly all of our ideas are built on other people's ideas. But I've just never been one to take it as gospel, certain practices or anything. Like, so someone could tell me something really simple, like that nitrogen has this effect or something. I'm like, well, how do you know that? And people generally just go, oh, well, it's just proven. It's like, well, where's the original work? Like, my mind's just always done that, sort of the way I'm put together, which can be really frustrating because I, <laughs> I don't seem to have a strong view on anything really, but <laughs> like to sort of float and learn. I reckon a great example is that with barley sowing rates, you'd been pushing the envelope on, on increasing barley sowing rates and we'd always had a, a number which was a district average of that's what you sow barley and you sort of pushed me at one stage to why is that the rate and I went back and found some old data out of Tamworth and worked out that as a district we were probably all sowing our barley too low that, and that data actually suggested that yep. the sowing rate you're using was probably ideal. So I thought that was a, yeah pretty good example of pushing your agronomist to the next level too. <laughs> but I just wanted to get a bit more of an idea of what sort of made you come back to agriculture, why you wanted to, what sort of drove you to want to be involved in agriculture? It seems like such a silly thing really that you love putting a little plant and a seed in the ground, watching it grow and getting the calculator out at the start of the season and going, oh, we're going to make a fortune and then keep hitting the minus button through the year as things go wrong it's a passion and where that passion comes from I, I don't know whether it's because it's what my family's always done and even my greater family yeah or what it is but no like I, I know I'm definitely passionate about it and but the actual drivers behind it yeah I'm not sure I can can tell you I sh should probably say to the listeners who who won't know this but I was your dad's agronomist I've been working on and off with you guys for 15 years I think I've seen a lot of changes in the business and the farm, definitely since you've been back. Do you reckon you could talk about some of the changes made to Bramble since you've come back into the business? The biggest change has definitely been around whether we're actually sowing crops or not. Also a very big push into summer cropping, which is something that is just not done around here. So it was a a big change and but yeah I'd definitely say the biggest change was the fact that I wouldn't sow crops some years whereas it's just been very standard to you just put a crop in come May and see what happens probably be the single biggest change I guess the other big change is the yields we're aiming for along with that the inputs that go along with that biggest changes have all been in the cropping system I guess you don't really view them as quite radical, but I guess they were. And I suppose I still see that now when I talk to other people in the district, that they give me a bit of a funny look about what we're doing. Like it's, yeah, but I'd say they're the main three. Yeah. So when you're talking about 
uh, change to summer cropping. What led you to make that decision to change to bring summer cropping into your system? Well, it's a couple of things, but the main driver, like, and I distinctly remember doing this, was understanding soil moisture. I would sit there just doing numbers. I, I, I kind of, we know basic numbers. We can estimate how much water the soil is holding, and then we sort of know basic water use efficiencies, and from there you can do calculations. I then started looking at our weather data, how long it would take for us to fill a profile to then grow a crop. What I was starting to see then was that winter fallows are more efficient because of obviously a lot lower temperatures and uh, steadier rainfall rates and that profiles would be full coming into November. And I just went, well, we've got to be trying to grow a crop when we have a full profile. We've got to start looking at summer crops. And I went, that can't be right because no one grows them here. And then I started looking at temperature data and full climatic data and started, say, comparing us to Gunnedah. And we're actually, our summer maximum temperatures are nearly three degrees cooler than Gunnedah and actually look like a much better place to be growing summer crops than Gunnedah. And it's like, well, climate numbers don't really lie. This is probably what we should be doing. Since I've been doing it we actually haven't had an average summer rainfall like and what i call summer is not technically summer but that november december january i find those are the three critical months in our say sorghum growing and yet they've still been very successful crops so i'm looking forward to the year i think that's uh, seven years in a row that we haven't hit average rainfall in that time so i'm going to sit here and say things are about to change and we might be able to really push the envelope in the summer cropping environment. I know you, you grew some corn, was it the summer of 2016, S 17? Yes, correct. Unheard of for anyone to be growing corn in this, this sort of area and you actually got some pretty reasonable yields considering the the lack of in-crop rainfall. Yeah, correct. You? Like I have to, I've got a memory a bit like a goldfish, like I swim around <laughs> a bowl every 30 seconds and go, hey, look at that. Um, the corn was an interesting one, like Dobbin, another mate of ours, Tony Stewart. He was the bloke who sort of suggested it to me and thought that he may have been smoking something. But, yeah, we, we put it in and it was, yeah, quite successful. Like we're not really set up to do corn, but I guess we proved the point that you can grow it here. And in a year, I think that summer it was like 50 or 60 mils of in-crop rain next to nothing and that corn still did four and a half tonne. The sorghum right next to it still beat it, about five and a half tonne. But, yeah, it still proved the point that it would work. 2016 was a pretty high rainfall in the winter period, so you had full profiles going Correct. into that and made sure you managed your soil moisture leaning into it. The next thing I'd like to sort of have a yarn about, Pete, is how your decision-making process works for sowing a crop. How do you monitor your moisture? What are your triggers for actually sowing or not sowing? Well, it's quite an interesting question. It's something I've been thinking about lately. I was actually speaking to someone else the other day about this and he asked me, a bloke asked me, are you basing this purely off science or off gut feeling? And I went, wow, that's a really good question. And and I actually think it's a mixture of both. I am sort of very a very science-based person. Scientifically, my sort of process is that I've tried to establish 
all our different soil types and their water holding capacities, that will give me a number. And so for our very good soils here, we're talking close to a 300 mil plant available water when they're full. And like I'd like to get pretty much to 80% on those. If I can get to that, I'll put a crop in. And that's the great thing about summer cropping as well, that it doesn't matter when that happens. So if that happens coming into the summer period, I can go a summer crop. If that happens coming into April, May, I can go into a winter crop. Having that flexibility allows me to take advantage of whenever I hit that, that point. How I'm measuring it? Basically just with moisture probes. I, I stick a probe in the ground. I haven't got any more scientific than that. Like I do use modelling. Yeah. So for soil water, like the soil, is it just soil, soil water app? Soil water app, yeah. 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 So I'll use that and play around a fair bit of that and that's actually how I've come up with capacities. I actually haven't measured capacities of soils, but what I've done over the years, put an estimate, pick a soil type, an estimate, and when I run out of water, and this has been particularly interesting in the summer crops because we've had very little in-crop rain, I can pick that point very yeah. accurately. And if that's matching up with what the soil water app's telling me or uh, another simulation app sim, yep. then I can go back and go, okay, it's this soil type. We had this amount of water. like, And that's not amazingly accurate. We could do it better, but I actually find that you're probably 80% of the way there with that. Yeah, yeah. Is there any tools that you think that we as an industry or that sort of industry could develop to make life a lot easier for you? Understanding that soil moisture? I'm actually not sure. Uh, the reason I say that, like, you can get, I find so many things in agriculture, if you're 80 or 90% of the way there, to get that last 10%, say, in a water number, can be expensive. And at the end of the day, is it really going to make a difference? Like, so if we started using proper water probes and yep. stuff all the time. Yep. They're quite expensive and time-consuming. Yeah. And especially in a dry land scenario, I actually can't really change that after it's happened. Yeah. Like I can understand their use far more in irrigation, but in dry land, if there's nothing you can do about it, then I'm not sure if it's worthwhile putting the energy. So what we're talking about before, ground-proofing with these apps and simulations probably would have saved me a lot of time if I'd just gone and done cores maybe, dried yep. them in the oven, measured actual water holding capacities. Yeah. And looking back on it, that's probably what I would have done to speed up that process. But these sort of ideas didn't come to me in one sort of instant. Yeah. It's, yep. it's like this journey that yep. I've gone on and you slowly piece them, piece them all together. Like, yeah, taking it all in at once. It just seemed to be way too much for my pea-sized intellect. Like, I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't piece it together. But it all makes perfect sense sort of later down the track. We mentioned using soil moisture probes. And, and again, the people listening to this won't know, but we're actually doing a bit of a demonstration strip um, with some soil moisture probes and some cover cropping. I think you sowed some barley four weeks ago. Correct. Trying to get some ground cover onto that country to improve infiltration and we've put some moisture probes in to see how much benefit that's going to make compared to a best double. Do you reckon you could go into a bit of detail why you chose to go with the cover crop and what you think that's going to do? 
Yep, fierce absorb. No, definitely. It was sort of highlighting in this system of not sowing all the time, only sowing when you meet, say, 80% soil water. And that's not hard and fast. Like yeah. We all know when, if you get to May and it's been raining, 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 everything looks wet, then, yeah, I might go at 50%. Yeah. Like, and that's where a bit of the gut feeling might come into it. So it's not like a hard and fast rule. rule. Yeah. It's more like an 80-20 rule. Like, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so in that system, like I was finding, like, for example, let's talk about the last three years or so. Uh, 2016 was a big winter cropping year, 16, 17 that summer, pretty decent summer cropping year. And then I hardly grew anything, hardly planted anything for the next few years. And by that time, your country starts getting very bare and in our sort of heavier soils here, we find the breakdown of stubbles and stuff incredibly fast. Like, So if I harvest a barley crop in November, I actually have very little ground cover by after eight months yeah like it's nearly all gone and so that creates problems my my biggest problem has been uh, say if i grow a sorghum crop year one then in average sort of rainfall uh times i'd have to go through the next winter and then the next summer before i then go into a winter crop that's when my profile like in these really heavy 300 mil plus soils is yeah. full are full again and that's a long time and I, I find by the time i get to that summer like 12 months after that first crop that my ground cover is very depleted these soils so it's it's like a double factor we have yes our water infra- infiltration rates are nowhere near as high but also these soils when they become dry on top they're just so soft and because we're in sloping country you'll very quickly get water erosion in big rain yep. events. So that's the main idea behind these cover crops. It, the main idea would be, say, coming out of sorghum, that we can bang, say, a barley in straight away. That might lead us to be flexible as well, because we might be able to go, well, if that next winter became really good, a really wet winter, then maybe we can just take that through the grain. Yes. If, but the general idea would be to yeah, create more ground cover spray it out, get it over the next summer to get into a winter crop. That's the sort of thinking behind it. Yeah. Don't know how it's going to work. This year was a bit different. Like we're sort of hoping to have that cover crop in a fair bit earlier and that's just coming out of such like a horrible three years where there's just no ground cover and yeah. we were actually copying some washing damage from those really heavy storms back in February. Yes. And it was just trying to mitigate that and if we're um, heading into a bit of a La Nina period, then the sorghum early on is not going to be enough to keep that soil together. So that's yeah. the, that's your idea about it. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Pete, one of the changes I've seen over the 10 years is far less sheep on fallows. You're still a mixed farmer. You've still got a, a livestock component of your business. Are you happy to talk about how the sheep and cattle fit into your cropping system? Yeah, it is a really big challenge. Again, the challenges for different soil types and stuff like these black heavy clays, if you've got stock on them and it's wet, disaster. Like she will pack the surface so hard and your water infiltration and stuff, it's just nearly becomes non-existent. Yeah. I mean, luckily they will fix themselves over time, but... Just ruins that fallow efficiency correct, short term. Yeah. Massively. So... Uh, we definitely don't have them on when it's wet. Like we try really hard 
to keep them off in those scenarios. I'd say just opportunistic. So generally they're not in there. We might let them in there quickly. I actually find that quite useful for weed control. Yep. Like you can be pretty selective and a bit clever what you're doing there. Yeah, like, yep. Because if they're going into a pretty much bare paddock and you've got a couple of escapes from chemical, they will <laughs> find them. <laughs> find them. Yeah, that's a system definitely where I'd need to work more on as well. No shine behind the fact that the cropping is the my main passion. Yes. Like it's definitely a, a big part and a very important part of our business and something that I do need to spend more time <laughs> sort of with. But yeah, so it, it's just trying to play that fine line between getting some benefit but also yeah, looking after that country and ground cover. Yeah. But you're definitely right. Like it has been a change. Sheep on farming country here has decreased a lot. Yeah. And it's very selective about when when yeah. that happens. A couple of paddocks of oats in that you're using as forage and in the past you've had dual purpose crops, even dual purpose or treated canola as a dual purpose. Yep. And got grazing out of it and, and still had pretty reasonable yield results coming out of that as well. Yeah, correct. Like, again, in our country, it, it's difficult to do. Like, so that was shown to me in my experience down south. Like, very big on grazing canola there. A lot of work with John Kierkegaard. Yeah. A million percent, it works. The, the problem here is, again, on our best farming country, disaster having stock in during the winter when it's wet. Yeah, like, yeah. So that undoes a fair bit of the work. So... I guess the fodder crops, the oats and stuff, they're on some of our lighter country. And, yeah, they're there for oh, a couple of reasons, like that initial grazing, but then also hay yes. later on in the season. Yeah. So they're sort of paddocks that I'm happier to have livestock on when it's wet. Yeah. One of the questions I've been asking people is, what have you changed? What's changed this year? Nothing yet. But there is definitely stuff in my mind. Yep. So I 100% need to set up sort of areas for definitely confinement feeding. That's something that we made mistakes in letting our ground cover get too low. And I can see how that happens. You're always thinking, oh, maybe it's just going to rain now. Yeah. Maybe it's just going to rain now. And it never does. Like we did sell a lot of sheep early, which was a good thing. A lot of the cattle, probably not early enough, maybe seen the writing on the wall a bit earlier. I don't think we did too badly, but I wouldn't sit here and say that I'm proud of what we did. Yeah. It's far from that. Definitely some big lessons that need to be implemented. I, I guess this hay thing, I've yes. never really yep. grown hay. Hay is going to be a, uh, a thing that I will now aim for. Yep. So that's been a change yep. brought on by that. And that's not so much for even our own use. Like I just saw where hay prices went in during yes. the drought and yep. and hay is it was a lot cheaper to store than grain. Yep. And I'd argue easier to store long term than grain. Yep. So that's sort of the idea behind that is just in these good years put a lot of hay away and give you options down the track whether you wanna if you wanna feed it to your stock you can. Yeah. Or had a bit of trouble getting through my head how much money you spend on feed to what the animals are worth like but you can turn around and sell the hay if you want like it gives you options going forward yeah but yeah definitely it's important to have those those sort of years in your mind and like hopefully it's not 
hopefully we don't see another one of those for another 50 years well past when I'm <laughs> when I'm gone <laughs> because no she was it was very very trying yeah but yeah the the big thing had to and and maybe not maybe that dry for that long there were some paddocks that we didn't have stock on they still ended up bare I've got to sit through and process that sort of stuff like what you can do about that I'm not sure if there is much you can do but it's definitely something to sit down and give some thought to but there's some low-hanging fruit there that we can implement reasonably cheaply and get ready for the next one. Spruiking the importance of holding ground cover and things like that through the drought, but when you get so many years of no summer rainfall and then three years of next to no rainfall at all, it's pretty hard to hold on to stubble when you're saying that within eight months you can lose your stubble in a normal season. So, yeah, something that I think we as an industry are trying to get our head around, not yeah. just yourself. You know, and I do suppose, I suppose the other thing was sort of proof of concept to me too, like I didn't plant many crops for that time and that was a real test for this idea about only planting when you meet certain triggers. I've got to say that saved a lot of money. Yeah. Like that made a big difference to the bottom line, like without that money going out for those three years. It, it, yeah, yeah, made a very big difference. And let's face it, livestock prices were pretty good through a lot of that. Yeah. They were the two things that saw us get through it not that badly. Like if we consider how shocking that period was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think they were the things that, yeah, made it a lot less painful, well, financially anyway. Yeah. So you're telling me that's when you found your newfound love of sheep, that Dave's influence over the last 30-odd years hadn't (laughs) hadn't got you that stage, it just took a drought. That's right, yeah. They keep producing wool, don't they? (laughs) But I have noticed he's been very quiet recently and we've still got a lot of fair bit of wool tucked away that I haven't seen any money come in for. (laughs) I think one of the things that's changed in, in your system is that you're probably using a lot more inputs just like to understand sort of how you've come to to use the rates that you're using and yeah how you sort of manage your, your nutrient budgets for your cropping system all it is basically about is that i've just got a tax problem all the time so i just got to keep finding ways to spend money no, i wish that was true i really wish that was true and i guess there's been another big thing where i've sort of bucked the trend definitely around here again with understanding water availability in the soils and um, water use efficiencies and stuff. And uh, so when I started doing the maths on that, and let's take, for example, a starting point of 200 mils of plant available water, and then we get 300 mils of in-crop rain, lose 100. So what's that? 400 mils of plant available water. If we're looking at canola and thinking that we can should be able to get, what, a 10 kilo? per mil per hectare yield, then the time old thing of chucking 80 kilos of urea on that, I just went, well, that doesn't work. I mean, if we need 80 units of N uh, per tonne of yield of canola, it, yeah, like we need a lot more if we want to make use of that available water. So that was a big driver. Now I applied that against, say, barley same thing started going well we've got enough water here to sort of grow eight tons of barley why are we only putting enough in to grow four tons of barley 
so I started doing that. Like, yes, it's created some other problems, but in essence, we've proven that's right. Like, we have hit those sort of yields. That's just trying to make the most of the water available to us. Time and time again, I'm seeing that the uh, nitrogen input has been easily, easily best return on investment ever, like across the business. But you've still got to be, it's not a blind thing like it's again trying to be as scientifically based as i can about that but it's as simple as matching actual matching numbers of n and like this applies for phosphorus and stuff as well obviously but but n has been the big one it's the big driver yeah so you're you're using the amount estimated amount of moisture to estimate your yield yes doing a soil test correct a deep end soil test working at how much nitrogen and other nutrients are there yep and then working out your inputs yes. from that. Yeah, absolutely. Like I have been working on numbers, say 80 units for canola, around 35 units for cereals of N, and have found that we actually are doing better than that. So whether the numbers like those, and this is back to where I question everything, like yeah. are our sources mineralising more N or like what is the story there? Like yeah, it's yeah. inexact, but again, I think we're 80% of the way there yeah yeah for very little effort a nitrogen soil test at the start of the season costs nothing yeah like bring a few proper numbers to the table has actually made a huge difference yeah and it's it's probably still the, the single biggest thing that people roll their eyes at me about is the yields that we aim for but and I was a little bit sheepish to start with. Like I wouldn't go and <laughs> tell people, oh, yeah, no, we're going to aim for some double digits there. I even thought I was crazy myself. But I've sort of seen enough of it in action now to understand that the numbers do work. Yeah. yeah. Again, there are other problems like standability and, yeah, a lot of other factors like that. But, yeah, that just all needs tweaking and the learning never ends. Mate, I've just got one more question for you. I'd just like to know what opportunities do you see in agriculture in the future? That's a good one and a really bad one for <laughs> a thinker like me. I, the fact, I, I guess I've got some worries about yeah, yep. fake meats and that side of thing. Yep. I have worries about, no, we were actually talking about the other day, about a licence to farm. Yeah. Like, yep. I think that's quite concerning. It is quite concerning, like the divide. Like there's so few people now tied to agriculture, like be the lowest in history. Like it's just the way humankind has gone. Yeah. That as we've become better and better at what we do, it means less people have got to do it and and then no one else sort of understands why we do the things we do. So, yeah, there are some concerns around that. Like what I do know, though, is that, there are just some absolutely incredible minds in agriculture. A lot of people that I just shake my head in disbelief about how clever they are, whenever they're around, we'll find a way and agriculture will be exciting. That's a great answer for someone who was hesitating to actually give an answer on that one. <laughs> I think that was really insightful. Thanks so much for your time. No, no worries at all. This episode was produced as part of Central West Local Land Services ADAPT project through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.